0: Welcome, and here's first thing you need to know. The rules are you can get up and you can get down whenever you want. You can ask questions whenever you want. You can interrupt whenever you want, as long as you're nice about it. And um, we are going to save some time at the end uh, so that the gals can um, have some time in here. And guys, we will go to the library for the last part um, together. Uh, but um, we're going to do our teaching part first, followed later by some small group time. Okay? This is the last meeting for Build this year, and the last meeting for Wellspring. So um, let's let's uh, let's pray, and then we'll talk through uh, some of the basics of what Build and Wellspring are all about. Okay? You pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. For this day. Thank you for especially this opportunity to be together like this. Lord, I thank you for the men and um, the women here who made a year long commitment um, to um, submit themselves to these ideas in Build and Wellspring, where we would shepherd our hearts with the gospel and the Word of God, and we would then step into our homes with your gospel and your Word. Um, giving off the aroma of the gospel there first and foremost before we go any other place. And then um, stepping into the lives of others in the church and outside the church with the gospel. Uh, Lord, that I, I pray that you would just take these uh, feeble efforts of ours and that you would bless them and that you would bring about a, a fruitfulness from it that uh, goes far beyond what it is that we're putting in. We're, we're counting on you being God You doing what you do all the time, which is take um, the frail efforts, the dependent efforts of of your people, and that you would bless them. And so, God, we're looking for your blessing in our own lives. Um, We want to become men and women who are committed to you. Um, We're relying on your spirit and on your strength and on your word, the power of the gospel to make us into what You have called us to be. And so, Lord, we're thankful for one more opportunity, especially this unique one, as we sit together to come and sit under Your Word, to meet with You there. Uh, And we cry out to You to to meet with us, to reveal Yourself to us. We want to see Your glory. We want to see the crosswork of Your Son. We want to see the transformation of life that Your Spirit brings so we want to study you um, and be transformed and be changed. Lord, we pray that this would bring about not just fruitfulness in our uh, in our own lives personally, but Lord, we want Grace Bible Church to be strengthened as a result of what we are and what we are becoming as men and women. Um, when your church is strong, um, the world has uh, an amazing picture put in front of it of the body of Christ, and we want your Son to be seen And Lord, we want to be strong members of that body. We don't want your Son's body in this world to appear weak and dysfunctional, but strong. And that means that each individual part needs to work as you desire it to work. And That's me, that's each one of these here. So Lord, please uh, be powerful in our lives. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, build, we started, I think, back in um, the fall of 2004 when we were still at Tempe High School meeting. How many of you were around at that time, Tempe High days? Probably about maybe just a little less than half of you. And um, we did build every year. I think we took one year off somewhere in there, but we did build every year. Uh, it, kind of keeps getting refined and retooled a little bit more and more, and, and I'm I'm going to retool it for next year. I'm really excited about some of the changes um, uh, that we're going to changes in the sense of order in which we study certain things and present certain stuff, bringing the gospel even more central to what we're talking about. And um, Wellspring started up two years ago. Um, for many years, uh, and those of you who are whose husbands were in build years ago um, I think you saw the benefit of, of the build like disciplines as your husband was was trying to put into practice um, you know shepherding their own heart to the Word of God to meet with God and and they were focusing on their families you you, you could see that you could see evidences of that and and um, but but you ladies have a unique role in a unique ministry within the body of Christ that goes beyond what men, do in the church, and even uh, what your husbands do, Titus 2 reveals that you have a very, very important role in the body. That you need to be teaching younger women. You need to be teaching other women. And so, um, there's no better thing for women to make sure that other women in the church are all about than the same build disciplines that we're focusing on, which are the Wellspring disciplines. So I want to walk through those first three. Guys, in case you don't know, I mean, we have we have six disciplines because we need much more discipline than the women. The women only need three. Did you know that? So they only have three. We have six. Their, their three are our first three. And so this is what we do every time at Build. We say, turn your notebook over. And I don't know if that's your practice as well, ladies, but here's what we do. We want we want this that when you get bumped in the middle of the night, this just spills out of your mouth. Now, number one, what it's all about is it's about shepherding our hearts, Right? Uh, but shepherding our hearts to the Word of God so that we meet God in His Word. This is what we uh, never want to forget, that God primarily has revealed Himself most clearly in the Scriptures. scriptures um, the Scriptures are first and foremost revelation, and they are not revelation of a whole bunch of rules for living, although that is included. But primarily, Scripture is written to us so that it reveals God. And so if you, wife, woman, wrote a letter to your fiancé, your boyfriend, your husband, and you were telling him everything about who you were so that you could he could understand who you are, and he walked away from it saying, you know, it's very interesting that she uses the present tense 75% of the time and the past tense 25% of the time. And um, there were only two imperatives, and most of them were just propositional statements that were written, and you would be like, you are a bat. You missed the whole point. And that's what we must be very careful about when we go to the Word of God. Those things are important. Because meaning is conveyed through language. And grammar works a certain way and meaning is bound up in words and how you string them together and how they're related. It's very important. I'm not trying to demean those things. But if you get all of that and you do not get God Himself and what He reveals about Himself, you are impoverished. I am impoverished. And so what we want to keep before us is that we come to the Word of God first and foremost as an act of worship. God, please reveal Yourself to me. I must see You. I must see You as You are, as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Reveal Yourself to me. You get that, and all of the other things will come together. Uh, You become that kind of a man. You become that kind of a woman. And people on this earth, sinners, will be blessed by being around you. Because you are about God. You've met with God. Your children will be blessed. Um, So, you want to keep that right in front of you. Everything else flows from that. You cannot play leapfrog over your heart and get to other things. Every day... This is the first thing. You drag your sorry self out of bed and you drag your heart before the Word of God and you say, God, I feel like I need to get saved all over again. But I know that's not true. But I feel that cold in my heart. So I'm going to drag my heart before the heat of your revelation of yourself. Now, do what only you can do through your Word. And your heart begins to warm. And your heart begins to warm. And then all throughout the day, you need to keep bringing your cold heart back to the Word. Back to the Word. Back to truths from God. Um, at the end of your day, again, it's non-stop. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Right? Okay. You, as you're working on becoming that kind of a man, that kind of a woman, the, the first place of impact, the first place of impact must be your household. The people that you live with, uh, the people who live with you, need to see, need to experience from you that you are a man of God's word. You are a woman of God's word. You are a woman who is after the God revealed in Scripture. Uh, that needs to impact those people first of all. We, ladies, we talk about this with um, the guys, um, can, and and it's true for it's true for young ladies as well. But can you remember in? At some point in, in like junior high, the last place you thought it was cool to be was home. Do you remember that? All of the cool people, for for most of us, this isn't true for all, all people, but this is this is a generalization. But all of the cool people and all the cool places, I mean, it was like anywhere but in your home. There's just this thing within us where we want to get away from household stuff. And so we start to drift. A young man does that in junior high. He does that in high school. He just wants to get away. He goes to college. He gets his dream come true. He doesn't have to live at home anymore. And he gets to do it with a whole bunch of other guys who live with him in the house or the dorm or whatever. And they don't care about each other except for the fun that they can have together. And then there's this amazing, weird thought that goes on in the young man's mind. That when I... Find the right girl, I would never be like that to her. That she'll, the home will be an amazing thing, an amazing place. And so you get married, and then the honeymoon wears off, and the next thing you know, you're still in that same trend, that same bent, that same fleshly pattern of leapfrogging your house, just and you, it's easier to work more. It's easier to leave the house earlier. It's le- easier to come home later. It's easier to even when you are home, not be home. Uh, guys, I mean, just snap out of it. I mean, this—I I can come home, and I can realize that I've been home for an hour, and I haven't really been home yet. That drive home, that traffic is there for a reason—to give you time to come to your senses. To pray and to be ready. Um, And ladies, you know this. This is true for you too. I mean, you can be home but not be home. There's this bent in us, in our flesh and in our sin, to ignore and neglect primary relationships. And we deceive ourselves. Because I'm making an impact at work. And I'm making an impact in, in my ministry. And I'm making an impact in my small group. What's wrong with you people in this house? Can't you appreciate that? I'm discipling women. And... Don't you see how God's using me? And and we want to be able to say to ourselves there's there's something there's there's a degree of hypocrisy there. There's not integrity in that because what I've demonstrated myself to be outside of my home is actually not what I am in my home. So, we shepherd our hearts and we push what God is doing in our hearts through the word of God into our homes first. You live there, you focus there, you discipline yourself for there. You, you need to learn to shepherd what's going on in your home first. And this is true, this is acknowledged even in elder uh, qualifications, isn't it? If he can't manage his own household, what is he thinking that he can manage a church? Right? And so this is really foundational stuff for the church in regards to its leadership of, of the men, by the men. As elders, um, so we're trying to say, men and women of the church, come. Let's gather around these disciplines. Let's focus on these things first and most. And there are other important things that we must get to, but these things first and most. Because if we don't do this well, we gut ourselves of leadership in our homes and in the church that have integrity. When you look in a church and you see the the so often sad. Um, Reality that a man crashes and burns morally. You can almost always find out, after the fact, that something was not right either here, in the heart, and or in the home. And the warning signs were there all along. It just finally caught up to him as he was playing leapfrog over his heart and over his home. And the church should be spared from that. The church should be spared from that. The world shouldn't have to see another example of that. Um, We are what we are. We'll deceive ourselves in our sins, and we'll all stumble and crash and burn in some way, shape, or form. But we need to be laboring now against that flow, swimming upstream against that by the power of God in the gospel, with His Word, in the fullness of His Spirit, as we shepherd our hearts and then our homes. You be that kind of man. You be that kind of woman. And you know what? You should step into the lives of other people. In the church and outside the church. Your life must come up against other lives. That's the third discipline, the ministry. You are ready to have a ministry among people. It's not strictly sequential that you must shepherd your heart, you do all of that, and you graduate from that, you get a diploma for it, you put it on the wall, and then you go into your home, and you do all of that, and you graduate from that, and you get a diploma, and you put it on the wall, and then you step out into people's lives. It doesn't have that way. These things overlap. It's primary, though. It's primary. The thing that you must be working on most, and most frequently, is your heart. Your home and then ministry does take place and as you do that you're going to be a blessing with the gospel to to many people within the church and outside the church right now gals that's where you guys um, your disciplines um, end there what the, just so you understand what the guys have added on to theirs is um, discipline four is the qualifications the qualifications for leadership that are found in first Timothy three and in Titus one. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you have the qualifications for elders. In 1 Timothy 3, you have the qualification for deacons. And we put those in front of the guys and say, strive for these things. Strive for these things. You can take any one of the qualifications outside of the skill set ones, like must be able to teach. You can take all the other ones, and you'll find them either uh, a heart issue, a home issue, or what are they like with people issue in ministry. All of the qualifications focus on that. Um, discipline five for the guys is what we call the hermeneutic and what we've done in the last three meetings that we've had together is we've gone over what's our right way to interpret the Bible um, reading it from left to right in a, reading it the way that it was written it was written from left to right we're going to read our Bibles and interpret them from left to right um, a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic we, we try to focus on that with the guys because they're going to be teaching the word um, in significant ways and leading in that way in the church Um, The last discipline is the one we're going to talk about today, which we get to insert into yours today, into your time. Discipline six is the the vision and the purpose of Grace Bible Church. Um, You are disciplining your heart and your, your, your activity in your home and your ministry, and you're doing that not just at any church, you're doing it at this church. Your life is connected to Grace Bible Church, and so it's important for you to understand what Grace Bible Church has summed itself up with in regards to its biblical vision and its gospel purpose. So that's where we are today. Okay? Any questions? Any elders or elders' wives want to add to anything? Or anybody make a comment? Have a question? No? Alright. Take your hand out. Let's dig in. Okay? A biblical vision of God leads us to our gospel purpose in Christ. That's what you'll see on our bulletin every Sunday. That's what you'll see on our website. Um, This is what is really kind of the foundation underneath us. A biblical vision of God leads us to our gospel purpose in Christ. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a biblical vision of God first. So number one, a biblical vision of God. Let's talk about first what we do not mean by vision. That can be a very, very... um, uh, you, you got to define that word. By what you mean and what you don't mean. Here's what we don't mean. We do not mean, by vision, a subjective, unverifiable, dream-like vision that any man in this church had where you would just have to take their word for it. We don't mean anything like that. We also do not mean a Daniel-like vision in his book. We don't mean a, a Zechariah-like vision where he had in the temple concerning his the birth of His Son, and the coming of Messiah. We don't mean that. That's not subjective. That's been verified, and it's been inscripturated. We're not even claiming to have those kinds of visions ourselves. Okay? So what do we mean by a biblical vision? I'm going to focus on those two words, biblical and vision. Let's start with the word vision first. By vision, we mean we want to set our sights, or our vision, on the Bible. Okay? And in doing so, we will find that we will see, as the Bible sees, the world. So we're setting our sights on the Bible, and we're going to see the world as the Bible sees. Okay, That's what we mean by vision. It's just setting before us, setting in sight before us God's Word. Uh, But it's a biblical vision. We want the Bible, we want Bible texts to be, and I want you to write this, this phrase down. We want the Bible to be the controlling line of authority. C-L-A. The controlling line of authority for us. The line that controls us, the, 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 the force that has power in our lives and tells us to go to the left or to the right or to stay put, is Bible text. When we say we have a biblical vision, we're saying we want the Bible to be the controlling line of authority. Now let me give you a contrast so that you understand this. Okay, We have a biblical vision, not a theological vision. Okay, It doesn't say a theological vision of God leads us to the gospel purpose. We have a biblical vision, not a theological vision. That doesn't mean we don't think theolo- theology is important. Theology is very important. But let me tell you what I mean by this. Every single one of you in here is a theologian. Because when you read your Bible text by text by text by text, you draw from that theological conclusions about God, theological conclusions about man, um, other kinds of conclusions about uh, salvation. You always do that and then you find your mind starting to organize those ideas that you, those conclusions you, you just drew from scripture. So you draw theological conclusions, you begin to organize them and you begin to put as you read your Bible, God is like this. Sinners are like this. Salvation is like this. You all do that. We all do. It's unavoidable. Okay? And you are then influenced by all of those conclusions you draw When you come back to the Bible. So when you've been reading your Bible, you bring your theological understanding of God back to the Bible. And you approach it as you turn the page to read from where you left yesterday with an understanding, The God that I met yesterday was like this in my mind. And I'm going to look for Him again. And you see that. However... This how I mean, all of us do this. You're influenced by your theological presuppositions when you come back to the Bible. You are, but. The controlling line of authority is not your theological conclusions. Your controlling line of authority is the biblical text. So when you come back with all of your theological conclusions that you love and that you hold on to and that for hopefully all of them you should not let any of them go because they're all the right theological conclusions. But being a fallen man or woman you know that you have some theological conclusions somewhere that aren't right. So, when you come back to the Bible, you take your theological conclusions and you loosen your hand and you hold it open when you come to the Bible. Why? Because you doubt whether or not you've made any right theological conclusions at all, ever? No. But you open it up and all of your theological conclusions, God is sovereign. Listen, I will never let that go except, you know when? Every time I come to the Word of God. Not let it go in the sense that I've abandoned it, but I will open my hand and I will let the sovereignty of God sit on my hand that I love and I will let God's word speak to it again. Why? Because the Bible is the controlling line of authority and the Bible never contradicts itself. It is a unified one, unified theme and message. And so whatever conclusions I draw, when I come back to the word of God, I hold those theological conclusions with an open hand and I let the word of god speak to it again and when the bible again confirms the sovereignty of god now i've got a i've got to even i got to get a bigger grasp around the sovereignty of god or the depravity of my of my sinful condition i hold on to it again but do you understand what what we're saying the controlling line of authority is not your theology it's not a catechism it's not a confession Okay, those are not bad things but when you start to prop up a catechism or you start to prop up a confession that the church in history past grabbed a hold of and you hang on to it and you are a church that you can't let go of some of those things well now then you just brought up and you just introduced another controlling line of authority that is equal with God's word because if it says infant baptism and you won't let go of it then guess what has to fudge when you come to the Bible. See, the controlling line of authority is not a theological system. It is the Bible. It's a biblical vision of God that we want. Okay? Um, And it's a biblical vision of God, just as we said. The emphasis is on God. Look, when you read your Bibles, please notice with great accuracy and conviction, creation. You've got creation in the early pages of your Bible. And then please note with great accuracy that God begins to work through a people called Israel. And then watch with great accuracy how He gives them Mosaic Law at Mount Sinai. And then watch with great accuracy as as a king like David comes. And then with great accuracy, notice that the church gets formed in the New Testament. And then watch with great accuracy the end of all things at the end of it. Watch all of that. But if you get all of those things, and you miss primarily God, then you've missed the whole point. Because what is creation without God? What is creation without the God of creation? What is Israel without the God of Israel? What is Mosaic Law without the God of Mosaic Law? What is the church without the God of the church? And what is the end without the God of the end? So, it is a biblical vision, and again, we want to see everything tied to God. Because everything is tied to God. So our biblical vision, primarily, it's got a triad with it. It's the glory of God, the cross of Christ, and the life transformation by the Holy Spirit. Our biblical vision of God focuses on the Trinity. Okay? It's Trinitarian. Um, So let's talk about that. The glory of God, the cross of Christ, and the life transformation by the Spirit. Glory of God. This is probably where we would locate... Well, not probably, it is. This is where we would locate the Father. um, God the Father. Although we're not trying to say, as you'll see in just a moment, we're we're not trying to say that Jesus doesn't have glory. Okay, We're talking about the glory of God, and and the Father gave much of that glory to His Son. Um, I encourage you, as you read through your Bible year by year, because you never stop doing that, right? You just... You can do it at different paces in different ways. I'll tell you what I'm trying to do this year. I'm trying to read 10 chapters a day. Um, and it is so challenging because I, my mind, look, I, I usually read 4 chapters a day and um, my mind will wander it by the time I'm on the 4th chapter. Uh, and i got 6 more to go. I'm trying something different because that will take me through the Bible I think 3 times in a year. Uh, and Next year I might do it Not that. But the point is, you're always working through the Bible. As you do that, look for the word glory. Just look for the word glory. Don't cheat and get a concordance and look for the word glory and just write them all down. Here they all are. Don't cheat. You'll rob yourself of 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 the blessing of working from left to right through your Bible. And, and just find the word glory. Put a little margin or take, buy yourself a new journal and, and it's your glory journal. And write down all the passages. Okay, You'll be so blessed if you do that. What is, what is God's glory? Here it is. It's God's weightiness. What is glory? It's God's worth. It's His splendor. It's God's impressiveness. The word in, in the Old Testament in, in Hebrew is the word, it, it just means heavy. Heavy. God is heavy. He's weighty. He's impressive. He's splendid. And that oftentimes is expressed, here's a key component with it, that weightiness, that impressiveness is expressed through light oftentimes. Radiant blinding, brilliant light. There's a sense in which it could be said that God's glory is His way of communicating Himself. God's glory is His way of communicating Himself because no man can see God and live. Right? John 1.18 says no one has seen God at any time. You can't see God. In the condition you are right now, in your mortality, you could not see God fully as He is, you would be done. So how are we going to see what He's like? He has weightiness that He wants you to see. And it will blind you. If you get near that weightiness, that impressiveness, that radiant light, when you come down from the mountain, you'll be glowing. That was Moses, right? You will fall to the ground like a dead man. Isaiah, Peter, John. Okay? So God communicates himself to man in the Bible at different times in a weighty, impressive, radiant form that man has the ability to soak in. Okay. The Old Testament classic passage on this is uh, Exodus 33. I want you to turn there with me. Let's look at it quickly. Exodus 33, on the glory of God. Very, very sad portion of Exodus. In chapter 32, um, Moses has been up on the mountain, writing out the law that God gives to him. He and Joshua start to come down, and they're like, there's a, there's a, there's a sound of war in the camp. And they get a little closer and they go, that's not war. That's singing and dancing. And they come down and something amazing happened. They all gave their earrings and their gold pieces to Aaron and he threw it in the fire and out came a calf, he says. And he said, this is Yahweh who delivered you out. And that's chapter 32. And God says, that's it. I am not going with you. My angel will go ahead for you. And Moses in chapter 33 pleads, and he says, um, verse 12, you, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me, because you told me you weren't going. Uh, and he, he just pleads with them. And and, God, and he says in verse 13, um, I pray you if, you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses affirms this. He says, if your presence does not go with us, just let this all end right here. Because what is Israel without God? Nothing. So God, you must go with us. Um, Look at verse um, 18. And Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And God said, I, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me. I love that. Somehow he's confined himself to some part of his creation. He goes, There's a spot over here by me. Um. And you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about when my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed, because you would just be done. And then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not be seen. So the radiant glory that's trailing behind him, Moses gets to see. That's the classic Old Testament text on the glory of God. New Testament teaching... um, takes God's glory and begins to connect it to the Son. In John 1.14 it talks about uh, we beheld His glory. In John chapter 12 verses 37 to 41 um, John lets us know that it was Isaiah who saw Jesus' glory. The glory he saw in Isaiah 6 was actually the glory of Messiah Jesus. Luke 9. 28 to 36 is the glory of God in the sun at the Mount of Transfiguration it's very interesting Uh, a few disciples go up on a mountain like we just saw where Moses was and next thing you know Moses is on that mountain and also Elijah so you've got the law and the prophets with Jesus and Jesus' clothes become whiter than any launderer on earth could ever make them and his face is just exploding with this brilliant light he's being revealed in all of his glory Um, Luke 20 uh, I'm sorry Matthew verse 16 or chapter 16 verse 27 is all about um, Jesus comes in the glory of his father for judgment and chapter 24 of Matthew verse 30 is Jesus glory as he gathers his elect from the four corners of the earth and Matthew 25 verse 31 it's all about Jesus glory and the sheep and the goat judgment and then you get all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and the the new Jerusalem um, is all about God's glory that illumines it there's no need for the sun anymore it's just all about God's glory and the Lamb is the lamp so from Exodus, the beginning of your Bible all the way to the end of the Bible is about the glory of God that is a primary theme as you read through the Bible the Bible you would conclude as you read it is about God's glory His weightiness, His impressiveness His splendor practically speaking, so what? it's about the glory of God What do you do practically speaking? Here's what you do. You position yourself daily to drink in the glory of God in Scripture. Do not jump over that. Don't miss that. Drink in the glory of God in Scripture daily. That's what the practical implication is. You need to be more like Moses and say, "Um," as you get out of bed and you rub the sleep out of your eyes and you open this and you say, show me your glory. I want to drink it in. We talk about God's glory this way. I want to glorify God in all that I do. And that is very true. But glorify is a verb. It's something you do. And if you want to be best equipped to do that verb, to do that action, if you want to be able to glorify God best, the first thing you need to be is one who has drank in the glory of God in Scripture. What if you never did that? What if you never soaked in the glory of God in Scripture and you wanted to glorify God with your life? Do you think there would be an impact? A connection? What if you did? What if your goal every day was, I want to drink in what God has revealed of Himself and all of His impressiveness, and I want to glorify God? See the connection? Don't miss that. Okay. Um, Let's talk about the cross of Christ. Christ's death related to God's glory. How is Christ's death related to God's glory in the most amazing way possible? This is just this is fascinating. The glory of God in scripture is inseparably tied, get this, to blood. The shed blood of an innocent substitute. Did you know that? See, what's the proof of that? All you have to do is is read and when you get to Exodus, you find out that God calls and delivers Israel out of Egypt. And he says, come to this mountain. And Moses is told to come up on this mountain. Israel, camped at the base of this mountain, is looking at it. It's shaking. It's reverberating. And there's fire and lightning enveloping this mountain. And it's all because... God's there. In all of his glory, God is enveloping this mountain. This mountain is shaking under the impressiveness of God on the mountain. And God says to Moses, Please come up. I have a pattern that I want you to see. And it's a pattern for what's going to be a tent for you. And see, you're all going to camp in the wilderness and you're going to align yourself in a certain array. And then we're going to put this special tent right in the middle of all of your tents. And this is crazy. But the glory of God that's shaking this mountain, God's going to put inside that tent. And in that tent, everywhere, is going to be blood. Because you are sinners. And I want you to meet with me in all of my glory, but the only way you can do that is through the shed blood of an innocent substitute in your place. God's glory in the tent and blood shed. That's the way your Bible starts. And so as you move on, of course, those small, shadowy, frail, innocent animal sacrifices keep crying out throughout the ages we need a better blood and we need a better substitute we need one who is more innocent than I and he finally comes he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and God has his glory all over that one you cannot talk about the glory of God without talking about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You just can't. And when that one is in all of his glory in, in eternity future, in, the, in heaven, present heaven, in future heaven, and the kingdom and the eternal state, John says, I looked, and there was a lamb standing as if slain. A lamb as if slain in all of his glory. I mean, God never separates his glory from the slain lamb ever in his mind okay so the cross is all about God's glory God has fused his glory together with his substitute's blood his son it reached a a revelational climax in Jesus in the New Testament you can't talk about the glory of God without getting to the cross okay Um, let's talk about the cross of Christ what we're not saying and this is important this is not being nitpicky we've actually I mean we've actually as elders over the years heard from some not from very many but from some a concern that we're talking about the cross a lot but we're not talking about Jesus and I I just want to make it clear that that is not the case at all what is the cross without Jesus? it's just another Roman cross we're not interested in, in Roman crosses because then any man or criminal could be on it. There's only one Roman cross that matters. And and what makes that one Roman cross significant is the one who is on it, right? So we're not interested first merely in a cross. We're not interested in a Christless cross. And by focusing on the cross of Christ, we're not trying to diminish the importance of the empty tomb either. Okay, um, We're not trying to focus on the cross to the exclusion of the empty tomb. In fact, I, I would say, um, I, I hope without any... Uh, of a diminishing in my heart and soul for the, for the cross I just, I'm growing in my love and my appreciation of what the resurrection of Jesus is all about in connection with it but what we're saying is the cross has no meaning or no sense to it without the right one dying on it and the empty tomb makes no sense without the right one dying on the cross shedding his blood as a substitute um, the Old Testament type for this that you see Um, in the Old Testament is in Leviticus 16 it's the day of atonement Uh, the word atonement occurs 15 times there in that chapter and the New Testament teaching is uh, is all over the place on this but let's look at Hebrews 9 Hebrews 9 verse 22 In fact, let me back up to to verse um, 18. This will tie into what we talked about in regards to God coming and dwelling into a, a, a tent. Verse 18 of Hebrews 9. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. That first covenant was the old covenant, and it was inaugurated with blood. That was an important part of it, because God's glory was attached to it. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So you see, what he's talking about is there's continuity between what God did in the Old Covenant and what he's doing now in Jesus. Blood had to be a part of it. Verse 23, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. Did you notice that? He didn't go into the temple, into the holy place. But he entered into the true one, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer um, himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested, he has been revealed to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There it is. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, He will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. Here's your key theological phrase. Are you ready? Three key words. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. You want to understand the cross of Christ? You need to understand that phrase. Write it down. Penal, P-E-N-A-L, substitutionary it's too long for me to spell I'll probably get it wrong atonement just put a capital S and some letters after it and you'll you'll get it (laughs) what do we mean by that? penal means penalty penalty a penalty had to be paid that's what's going on in the cross of Jesus Christ a penalty had to be paid what does the word substitutionary do with that? Ah, the penalty could only be paid by a substitute. An innocent substitute. What's the word atonement? Um, Well, that's the result. Um, a, A penalty paid by a substitute as he shed his blood atones for sin. By atonement, we mean sins wiped away out of God's sight. By atonement, we mean wrath satisfied in God's sight. By atonement, we mean reconciliation. We've been reconciled. Okay? So a penalty had to be paid that you and I cannot pay. We don't have the currency to to be able to offer it but a substitute did and, and he did and his name is Jesus and he shed his blood and he paid the penalty for us and he atoned for our sins he took my sin out of God's sight he satisfied God's wrath towards me in his son on the cross and he reconciled me to himself through the blood of his son I have been made at one with God at one atonement okay that's the cross Practically speaking, what does this what does this mean for you? Um, first of all, just like you position yourself before the scriptures to drink in the glory of God, you position yourself first and foremost every day to drink in penal substitutionary atonement. Did you know that? That's what you do. You position your heart to drink in the gospel to see this again, to see this again. This is central to God's being. This is what He ties His glory to. You cannot go a day without this. You can't. I know you've done it sometimes. I know you'll try it again, just like me. I know you can be deceived into thinking you don't need this, but you need this every day. You drink this in first and foremost. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except one thing. There's only one thing I want to know. Christ and Him crucified. Galatians 6:14 to 15 May it never be that I would boast except in what? There's only one thing I want to boast in, brag on, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, through whom I've been crucified to the world and the world's been crucified to me. So you position yourself to drink that in. And that leads inevitably to the third part of the triad, the transformation of life by the by the Spirit. Um, you cannot when the glory of God in the cross of his Son touches a life, guess what happens? Everything changes. Everything changes. And this is the role of the Holy Spirit. What is his role in all of this? It is to apply the work of Christ on the cross To the life of the one that God is saving. That's his work. It happened historically in time. God's glory came to a revelational climax. In the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. 2,000 years ago. And my life went on for 19 years. um, At the latter part of the last century. And it had no connection with my life. Until. Somehow the spirit of God took my sorry life. And touched it. With the gospel. And it didn't happen, and tra- change in my life did not happen until the Holy Spirit did that. And it's the same that's true for you. The Holy Spirit seals us. Ephesians 1 13 to 14. He is the pledge of our inheritance. God inherits us. He's the down payment that says, don't worry, God has you, you're His. The Holy Spirit um, brings new birth which ushers in a whole new life. We are born again. And so penal substitutionary atonement in the hands of the Holy Spirit does all of this. He rebirths you. he, He seals you. And He begins to sanctify you progressively. Salvation is huge. Listen. Salvation is huge. When the Holy Spirit takes the crosswork of Jesus and applies it to your life, there's not, well, so, sort of a change. There's not like, a, like yeah, a couple of minor, there's been some tweakings in my life. No. Everything changes. Salvation is huge, it is massive. We could speak of it this way God saved us. We can speak of it in the past tense. The Bible speaks of it in the past tense. God saved us. He saved us by forgiving our sin. Everything's been wiped away. It's done. We can stand in the present. We can look back and we say, I was saved by God. God saved me. We can turn around and we can face the future of our lives and we can say, like the Bible does, and we will be saved from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 1. There is a wrath that is coming and we will be saved from it. It's not because it's uncertain right now whether we will, but by then we will be. No, we are saved, we have been saved and there is still a wrath that is coming and we will, in the salvation we have, be saved yet future from it. Right? And so, and we'll have eternal life and we'll have heaven. And this is the way the gospel was presented to me in February of 1985. Believe Jesus and you will have forgiveness of sins, everything in your life in the past, just wiped clean. And you will have, what? Eternal life with God. You'll go to heaven, and you don't have to go to hell. And that is wonderful. And we should never diminish those two important elements. There's just one problem. It's two-thirds of salvation. The gospel was powerful with my past and yours. And the gospel will be powerful in your future. But guess what? You can turn around right now and go, but what am I supposed to do right now? How do? How am I supposed to live right now? I guess I'm just supposed to be thankful. Which is, I'm trying to diminish that. That's important. But the Christian life is just one of thankfulness because I think about my past and I think about my future and I'm just a thankful person now. And I want to be and I should be. But that is... A diminished view of of salvation and this is what we're trying to recover, the gospel is about changing your life now and the Holy Spirit comes and he takes the work of Jesus and yes your past changed, your future is is, is secure but everything right now changes too, you are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit through the power of the, the cross applied to your life it's very important um to not miss that, um, and, and so let's talk about um, let, let's contrast two things to make sure we understand them. Regeneration compared to progressive sanctification. Regeneration is when God, uh, through the Spirit, causes you to be born again, right? Progressive sanctification is the process by which you're becoming more and more holy. Okay, let's talk about the differences. Um, regeneration, being born again, has only one set of fingerprints on it. Whose fingerprints are on your new birth? It's either yours or God's. God's, right? Glad we have that all clear now. That's very important. <laughs> okay? There's only one set of fingerprints on your new birth. Those are God's. Progressively being sanctified has. Two sets of fingerprints on it. God's and yours. Let me give you another one. Justification by faith alone has one set of fingerprints on it. God declares righteousness. Okay? But sanctification, progressive sanctification, has two sets of fingerprints on it. All theological, and not all theological errors... But a theological error will come any time you what? The minute you think that sanctification has only one set of fingerprints on it and it's done, you'll talk to people who actually will believe, there's not very many of them around, but who actually believe that they can't remember the last time they've sinned. There's some cults like that. Because they view it as, I have been saved from my sin. Or, you'll come across, we're more this way, and influenced by this. That somehow, getting into the salvation that God has is more of a, it's more of a process. See, I, I, need to, I need to put my fingerprints on some good things that I need to do and hopefully over time God will look at that as I'm working with him and he will over that process um, accept me see that That's those are equal opposite heresies okay? no there's only one set of fingerprints on the new birth but there's two sets of fingerprints on sanctification um, the new birth is an event it happens in time it's an event. it's not a process. Progressive sanctification is what? A process it takes place over time it is not an event and the Holy Spirit is those are his roles. Now it, it, it's, it so happens that a lot of times the, the, the Spirit of God what he gets focused on by the church is, is his gifting. And we are so thankful for God to give us gifts by the Spirit that He distributes to each one just as He wills, that He is sovereign over the gifts that are given. But if all you focus on is His gifts and you don't understand how He caused you to be born again and you don't understand His role in your fight for holiness, you you are not ready for the day. Right? So we need to come back to this primary work. There's an Old Testament um, teaching in in anticipation of the Spirit of God. In Jeremiah 31, uh, 31-34, to you have God's promise to the house of Israel and the house of Judah for a new heart in the new covenant that is coming for them. Um, You have in Ezekiel 36... Verses 22-32, to you have the promise of the Holy Spirit there. In the very next chapter in Ezekiel, in chapter 37, you have the dead bones that are on the ground and they begin to rattle together and they begin to come together and form themselves. And there's tendons and ligaments that start to form and attach and muscles and and a whole army of of men that come up from that. And um, God says in verse 14 of that chapter, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life, Israel. And you remember you have this even kind of this cryptic idea of, of what the Spirit of God does in, in 1 Samuel 10 when um, Saul has been is going to come across the prophets in the Old Testament and, um, and it says that the Spirit came upon him. Listen to this. This is 1 Samuel 10.6. Then the Spirit of Yahweh will come upon you mightily. This is Samuel telling Saul this. And you shall prophesy and then be changed into another man. That's not what the New Testament that's not the New Testament's teaching on being born again and being progressively sanctified by the Spirit but it certainly is interesting to watch in the Old Testament that when the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul he becomes a new he's a different guy now we get the fullness of that picture in the New Testament right when the Holy Spirit comes upon us in salvation in the new birth in progressive sanctification we we are new people we are new people New Testament teaching on the Spirit, John 3, Jesus teaching, you must be born again. Um, Go to Titus 3. You're in Hebrews 9. Just go back to Titus 3 for a moment. Verse 3. This is so important. Titus 3, verse 3. We... We also once were foolish ourselves. Do you ever remind yourself of that? Do you ever remind yourself that as a Christian? Because that's what Paul's doing. He's writing to believers and he's reminding them what they were. It's not it's not look, if all you do is live in what you used to be, that's bad. That's not what Paul's doing. But watch what Paul does. We also once were foolish ourselves. We were disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. He's saying there weren't two sets of fingerprints on His saving work in your life. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but He saved us according to His mercy. How did He save us? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit's role, to wash with a washing of regeneration and renewing. That Spirit is the one that He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Do you see how triune salvation is? he poured out upon us that spirit through Jesus god poured out that spirit on us through jesus he did it richly so so that being justified by his grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life so there's the salvation event talked about now look at this but this is a trustworthy this is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things i want you to speak confidently so that those who believed god We'll be careful to engage in good deeds. Where do the good deeds come in? After the work of the Spirit. Initially to cause you to be born again. And he's saying, look, I'm, I'll remind you about this, but listen, you better be engaged in good deeds because that's what the Spirit of God does in you, right? Second Corinthians five seventeen. 17 um, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, behold, new things have come. Romans eight, verses ten to thirteen, but if you live by the spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. Galatians three, verses three to six, having begun by the Spirit, are you now thinking that you can be perfected by the flesh? You continue to need the Spirit. Did you know that? First Peter one, two, you were chosen dot 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 by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. What does this mean practically in regards to the Holy Spirit? Daily position yourself in front of God's Word to remind yourself of your need for the third member of the Godhead. That you need Him desperately. You, you, you were begun by the Spirit. Now, you may not have said, you know what, I, here's my conscious effort. My, here's my plan. I know I've begun by the Spirit, but I'm going to perfect it in the flesh now. None of you would probably say that intentionally. But guess what? All practically speaking, we, we do that at some point or another. And through our neglect of the Spirit of God in our lives, we begin to do that. We're just living in our own strength. We just do the good deeds that we're supposed to do. And we say no to sin on our, on our own. We say yes to sin on our own. And, and we're weak. So position yourself daily before the Word of God to see your need for the Holy Spirit to, so you can express to God in prayer your dependency upon His Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit is is the forgotten member of the Godhead of people of our theological persuasion. Um, he is the forgotten member of the Godhead. Or it's His gifting of the members of the body that gets all of the airtime in We can't miss his primary, his foundational work of applying the cross in time to your life and my life. You can't miss his constant support for your sanctification. You need to be pleading for God, for fullness of his spirit, for continual transformation every day. Being thankful to God for his spirit. That's the first part. That's the biblical vision of God. Um... Let's talk about the second part. The biblical vision of God leads us to our gospel purpose in Christ. Um, what do we mean by a gospel purpose? What, what we mean by that, we're, we're very intentional on all of those words. Biblical vision, gospel purpose. Why do we use the word gospel now and, and we've constrained it down from Bible, which is all of the Bible, to gospel one theologian, I forget who said it, and I love the phrase. He says, the gospel is the crown jewel of the Bible. Right? It, it, in one sense, it, it's not accurate to say this, this book is the gospel. This book contains the gospel. This book reveals the gospel from beginning to end. Um, but the gospel is something unique within it. So why are we calling it a gospel purpose what we're doing when we say that is, is we're recognizing our place in redemptive history in which we live. Let me let me give you some contrast. We are not in Abraham's day. What was God's charge to Abraham? Leave your father and your father's home and go where? Go to the land that I'll show you. That's not the charge that we live under. Is it? We do not live in Israel's day. Um, We're not called to go dispossess nations in a land, take it over and occupy that land and live there. Um, Who are we? We are the church in Scripture. And yes, like Abraham, like he had a unique purpose... And like Israel had a unique purpose in God's redemptive plan, we too also have a unique purpose in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Why are there similarities? There are similarities like that. Adam had a purpose in God, and Abraham had a purpose in God, and Moses and Israel had a purpose in God, and the church has a purpose in God. Why are there similarities like that? Why is there continuity from my Old Testament through to the New? Because the one thing that never changes from the old to the new is God. And he's always working. He's just working through a different set of people at a different time. And oftentimes, what he does in being the continuous God through scripture is he discontinues some things. Did you know that Adam and Eve had certain things they could eat that Israel couldn't eat? That we now can eat again. Some things change. How he regulated Noah... How he regulated Moses and Israel and how he regulates us, it changes the specifics of that change. And what we're saying is we're under the gospel. And we have a gospel mission and a gospel purpose that we live for to advance as the church. So we have a gospel purpose. Um, And Jesus in the gospels, in the the four uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, he reveals that he was primarily after a triad. With them, So there's a triad in our biblical vision. There's a triad in our gospel purpose. What was Jesus primarily after with his disciples? Drawing them in, building them up, and sending them out. Right? They're complementary activities. Drawing in, building up, and sending out. And Acts and the rest of the New Testament builds on these triads. Um, now what I want you to do is I want you to notice the relationship between the first set of triads and the second one. In the biblical vision, it's all about... The glory of God. It's all about the cross of Jesus, and it's all about the life transformation by the Spirit. Those three are statements. They're not actions. It's the glory of God. It's just the statement of God's glory. The cross of Jesus is just a statement. It's just a proposition. Life transformation by the Spirit is just a fact. It's just life changes by the Spirit. Now, draw in, that's action. Build up. That's action. Send out. That's action. Why is it that way? Because propositions in Scripture always come first and move you inevitably to action. Oftentimes what you and I do is, is we'll kind of goof that up and we'll just kind of put the propositions aside and just give me commands. Just tell me what to do. Do. Well, wait. First, why don't you drink in the glory of God? And then why don't you drink in the gospel of Jesus Christ at the cross? And then why don't you drink in the transformation of life that comes by the Spirit? And watch what happens. You will be like a horse trying to get away from the pen, and you will just want to charge forward because you have been fed with the propositions in Scripture. So now we're talking about action. Now we're talking about action. Drawing in. Let's talk about that drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work yes we are commanded to go out and, and and be used and work with God so that sinners can be drawn into himself but we don't want to fool ourselves this is God's primary sovereign work uh, John chapter 6 look at these statements these are very important Jesus was very clear about this John 6:44. Drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work. John 6.44 Jesus said, No man, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65 of the same chapter. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one comes to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. That's how bad depravity is. That's how bad sin is. The only way that you will come to To Christ is if God the Father draws you. Um, So let's talk about drawing in for a moment. Drawing in, by that we do not mean being drawn into a program like Bill or Wellspring or a worship service or an evangelistic outreach event. We're not saying, wow, look how many sinners we drew in with that one. I'm not trying to say that's not important or that doesn't have a place. But we are never satisfied with drawing in until what? Until what? Until God does the work that only God can do in drawing them in to Jesus Christ in the gospel. Listen, does God use programs? Does he use worship services? Does he use Build? Does he use Wellspring? Does he use your small group? Yes, he does. Um, Be very thoughtful about the programs and the things that you do. Your evangelistic Bible study, does it use those things? Absolutely, do those things. But don't be satisfied with a chair being filled. Because that may or may not mean anything. It doesn't mean anything until that chair is filled by one who has been drawn into Jesus Christ. Right? So that's what we're looking for. Um, Next blank for you to fill in. Jesus crucified is God's unique object of attraction. When he draws people to himself, there's a tool that he loves to use. It's his son lifted up high on a cross. That's the object he's drawing people to. God does not draw people to himself with another object, or with another set of truth, or with another something. He doesn't. This is what sets us apart as Christians uniquely different than the whole rest of the world. We lift up Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And God says, that's what I love to use to draw people to myself. And He draws people to Himself in Jesus. We do not lift up good works. We do not lift up community. We do not lift up other messages. There are no other messages that God uses to draw people to himself other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus said in John twelve thirty two, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the word of the cross where Jesus was crucified. To those who are called in um, 1 Corinthians one twenty-two to twenty-four. To those who are called, Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In one Corinthians two one to five, your faith must rest not on the wisdom of men and what they do and how they try to program and how they try to scheme. You don't want your faith resting on that, but on instead the power of God. Practically speaking, what does this mean? This is this is so helpful. Um, when you think about what God wants to do in terms of drawing people to Himself, you think this. God, what do you love to use to draw people to saving faith in your Son? What do you love to use? Because whatever it is that you love to use, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be a part of. That's what I want to go after. So if it's Jesus Christ crucified, that's what I'm going to use. That's my message. I have no other message. So I've known I've known um, Christians over time. I I did this um, at points. I, I would hang out with unbelievers and ask befriend them and I would do a whole bunch of other things and set a whole bunch of other things in front of them with hopes yeah one day I want to get to the gospel I, I do want to do that but I'm setting all these other things in front of them and, and he's responding isn't that great we like like the same movies we like the same music we're like hanging we're, we're like we're coming like this isn't that encouraging God is truly at work I have set everything in front of that guy that God does not use to draw him to Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to be a knucklehead the first day and in a knucklehead way, hit him over the head with the gospel. But why not the first day? In love. With a burden for his soul. To say, Have you ever ever heard this? I lived 19 years of my life. I had never heard about shed blood of a substitute in my place for forgiveness of sins. Have you heard it? Why not? So, you want to use the thing that the Holy Spirit loves to use. Remember, the Spirit is the one who applies the work of the cross, right? That becomes the center of every relationship. Um, You might have to wait a long time. I've been waiting for 27 years for God to work in my mom. And I think it's finally happening. Um, Her openness to the gospel in ways I never would have imagined. Um, I'm hopeful that that's what it is. Um, So you lift up, Christ crucified. What about building up? Let's go to Ephesians 4. Just another hour and we'll be done. Kidding. We're very close. Just how close, I'm not going to tell you. But we're close. Building up. Jesus built up his disciples. And I want you to understand your place of being built up in connection with the place of the church being built up. Okay? Oftentimes we think of edification as personal edification. And listen, the Bible talks about that. You need to personally be built up in the gospel. You do. We'll talk about that. But what I want you to understand is how your personal edification is connected to a body. Okay, Ephesians 4. I'm going to let you refresh your memory with verses about um, 11 on down, but I want to focus in on verse 16. Watch this. From whom, and the whom is Christ, in verse 15, so from Christ, watch this, the whole body... And this is a typical Pauline sentence. The whole body, being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper work of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What's the subject of the the main verb in verse 16? The whole body. What's the main verb connected with it? Dot, 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 way down towards the end. Causes the growth of the body so get this you understand what he's saying the body causes the growth of the body did you know that the church body causes the growth of the church body that's the way God has set it up to be okay now let's walk through the pieces of that Um, from whom where does this all come from The the church body causes the growth of the body. Where does that come from? That capacity for the church body to grow the church body. Where does that capacity come from? From Him, who is Christ. So this is from Christ. We're not saying that the church does something and God's looking in another direction and unaware. Oh, you built yourself up. That's really great. I didn't know you were going to do that. No, this is from Christ, right? This is His way of doing it. Now watch this. From whom the whole body... Now, how does this work? How does the whole body do this? Being fitted and held together. First off, just stop right there. That's Paul's emphasis to say, if it's going to work, the body has got to be like this. The body can't be unfamiliar with itself. The body's got to be fitted and held together. You can't have members going, you know, I'm going to get this close and I'm only going to let you get that close. No, the body is being fitted and held together. Now, how does it do that? How does it get fitted and held together? By what every joint supplies. Now, it, it, it's literally what, by, by whatever supply is found at connections. So where, for instance, like um, ligaments and bones together. Is that right? Thank you. Don't want to get tendons because that's with muscles and their stuff, right? So ligaments and bones touch. At that point, there's a there's a supply of there's a connection of supply, there's a connection of power. That's what Paul is saying. The whole body is fitted and held together by the power supply that is where pieces touch together, where members touch together. In other words, members have to touch one another, because then a supply of power is there, and that's the being fitted and held together. God has determined that we fit and we are held together by our lives touching each other. Do you understand that? God puts a supply of power in our connection and we are fitted and held together. The body won't grow unless that happens. Okay? Now watch this. Verse 16. That's according to the proper working of each individual part. If this part right here that's going to be connected to this part right here when they touch there's supposed to be a supply of power if this part isn't working right and it comes up and it touches this, guess what it's trouble and we see this all the time when was the last, can you remember the last time that you were a, an actual trouble to the one that you were connected to each individual part must work according to the way that God says it must that's you that's you that's me but guess what His intent is not that you just focus on the proper working of your own individual life. Your life is meant by Him to do what? Touch another one. What happens when your life touches another one? At that point of connection, at that joint, there's a supply of power. What does that supply of power do? It takes the members of the body and it helps them what? To be fitted and held together. Why is that important? Because the body causes then the growth of the body. Your life, you better shepherd your heart and you need to become whom you are in Jesus Christ. Also, that you can put your life up against a bunch of other people's lives. Also, that the church becomes what the body of Christ is supposed to be causes the growth of the body, all that is for the building up of itself in love. What a display of love. When our lives touch like that and there's a power supply and we are fitted and held together, you cannot separate us. Nothing will separate us from each other in that. And the body causes the growth of the body. And the body of Christ has seemed to be something uncommon in this world. Unless we just won't want to put our lives together. And if we don't want to put our lives together, you know, what? we look like the Elks Club. Or something, I don't know. <laughs> building up. Practically speaking, what do, what do you focus on most? Do you focus on your own personal building up? Or do you also focus on the building up of the body? What I would want to encourage you with is don't stop focusing on your own personal building up. Just add to it that oh yeah, as I'm built up, my life needs to touch other people's lives. Are you in a small group yet? Look, that's not the only way that your life can come up against somebody else's life in the body, but listen, you need to be in a small group. Sitting together with a bunch of guys on Thursday night, this last week, talking about how we're going to shepherd our hearts in regards to our sin was a point of connection and supply that I needed, that you need. Put your lives together with others in the body. If you need help with that, you can come talk to me or Jacob. would be more than happy to help you as well. Any of the elders would. Lastly, sending out. Drawing in to be built up to be sent out. What's the connection between these? Um, as you're drawn in, God does not draw you in to his son in the gospel and say, you know, whether or not you get built up or get connected to a body, it's not important to me. But you'll find Christians who think that's Okay. I saw an article this last week that's talking about a movement where it's not the church, uh, but where young people are leaving the church in groves, the body of Christ, because they're disillusioned. They've, and this is nothing new. I mean, this has been going on for ever since the beginning. Uh, but they go to this other gathering and this other event in, in key cities across the the nation, and um, and so they're they're teaching each other that it's okay to be drawn in but I don't have to be identified and connected with a local member, a local body of Christ I, I don't know if they, they focus on the big capital C church well look we're all connected to that but I don't even know what that means I don't even know how to my connection with that is, is the supply that's not what Paul means because he's going to start talking later and he's going to say listen speak truth each one of you with his neighbor stop lying to one another forgive each other Ooh, the, the, the church at large I don't even know who to forgive I don't know who to stop lying to you get drawn in in the gospel in order to be built up in a local body and some of us now listen listen because this is, this is where a lot of us forget we get drawn into the body to be built up and God doesn't stop there some of us like that I like the idea of being built up that's it's good it's I'm all about body life, but guess what? All of that's for a reason. What? To be sent out. Now, everybody's sending out looks a little different, but everybody is a sent one. Everybody is a sent one. God has always been a sending God. In Exodus, he says, I will send you, Moses. In Isaiah, he says to um, Isaiah, whom, whom shall we send? In Jeremiah, he says, I will send you to them. They won't listen to you, by the way, Jeremiah. Ezekiel, he tells them, I will send you. You get to the New Testament, and God says to John the Baptist that he was sent. So God is always thinking, I'm just a sending God. In fact, I sent you my son. I am a sending God. Guess what a sending God does when he saves a sinner? A sending God makes a sinner into a... That's one. He doesn't know how to make anything else. He doesn't want to make anything else. Jesus Christ was sent by His sending Father. Read through the Gospel of John and look for the word "send" or "sent." You'll find it used about 50 times in the Gospel of John. Did you know the Holy Spirit was sent? John 14, 26, Jesus said the Father will send him in my name. John 15, 26, he is the one whom I will send to you from the Father. Chapter 16, verse 7 of John, Jesus said I will send him to you. Okay, so let me get this straight. God the Father is ascending. the son was sent by God the father and the son and the father send the spirit that the spirit is the one who applies the sent spirit applies the work of the sent christ from the sent father into my life and i can think of myself as being drawn in and built up but not sent out no i can't i'm called a witness right we are sent ones we are sent ones and you need to live that way. The first thing you need to do, if you want to know positionally or practically what to do with this, you, you, you get up every morning and you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, who am I? And you can answer that with a lot of excellent answers from the Bible. But you need to answer it with this one. Today, I am a sent one of Jesus Christ. God, I am going to today be interacting with people who are shorter than my kneecaps in my home. I am a sent one to them. I am going to school today, and God, I got beat up yesterday. Who am I? Oh yeah, I am a sent one. I can't find a job, and so in the meantime I, I work at the convenience store. Who am I today? I am a sent one. You wake up, in your tent on the mountainside of Papua New Guinea and the rain has been washing through your tent all night and you wake up and you don't have a mirror to look in and you say who am I? I am a sent one of Jesus Christ that's the only kind of disciple of Jesus there is I get up today and I have to spend all day with my grandchildren who am I? I am a sent one of Jesus Christ. I'm going to church today. And I'm going to fellowship with the body. I'm going to worship with the body. Who am I? I am a sent one among them. That's who we are. We proclaim Jesus as sent ones everywhere we go. Disciples are sent ones. It's important for us to keep these three in front of us, all of them equally. Um, It'd be very easy for us um, to, and and every church does this, every church has its personality. Um, We could become a church that fervently, busily invests itself um, in drawing in sinners through personal evangelism and evangelistic programs. You know churches that are that way. They're all about, on the front end, wanting to see people be exposed. the gospel and get saved that's what they're all about just want to see them get saved whether or not they've actually given very much thought to what needs to happen to them after that needs to be asked but some churches are that way and we could become like that we could become a church that fervently and busily sets before the members of the body Um, one bible study after another bible study after a build after a wellspring after an H3 after all this and I know where we will gravitate towards in our own weakness a strength becomes a weakness and we can be all about building one another up in the body of Christ but we can lose sight too easily that the fact that people are perishing without Jesus around us we could become a church that all we're about is missions we're just sending people and there are are churches this way and and praise God for sending missionaries but, but listen carefully to this We'll send anybody who has a desire to go. I know missions agencies that all they do is they go around and they try to... If you go, Did you know if you go on a missions trip, you will think about missions as a career? Did you know that? And most likely, the place that you end up going is the first place you do a short-term missions trip on. And you go. Now look... Uh, Proper training? Are you the right character? Are you the right person to do that? Praise God, go. Do you do you have a site for the local church and how important it is? Praise God, go. But to just be about missions, just to get everybody and their dog to go who has a desire, um, that's a distortion that forgets drawing in and building up. So what do you need to do as a church? What must we do as a church? Keep these three things in front of us all of the time. We're about drawing in with the only thing that matters. What about, what about doing missions in a way where what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I don't know, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to make sure that there's clean drinking water in this village. Look, do we want children and women and people to have clean drinking water? Of course we do. Um, if that's all I'm going to do, I am not setting in front of them what God loves to use to draw them to Jesus Christ. We are not social workers. We care about the person in totality, but we are about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of the gospel. When Peter went into the temple in Acts 3, and he healed a man, and then he got in trouble, what were they upset with? Stop healing. Stop your social work in the temple. No, it was shut up. That name, uh uh-uh. Why did the enemies and the adversaries of Jesus focus in on that? Because they know what the power is in that. I wonder if we know, the church sometimes knows what the power is. And guess what? What you're going to find out tomorrow if we get to it all is um, they go back and they pray and they say, help us to speak boldly while you continue to do miracles and signs and wonders. Peter's not opposed to healing people and bringing good to their life. Physical good. But it's not about that, first and foremost. It's about the gospel. Okay? So we need to focus on these three things. So, um, And I want you to think about the centrality of the gospel, finally, in these three pieces. Drawing in. You, you can't be drawn in apart from the gospel. You will never be built up personally or in the body of Christ apart from the gospel. And you are should never be sent out unless you are sent out With the gospel. So it is a gospel purpose. You understand? A gospel purpose. Drawing in with the gospel, building up with the gospel, sending out with the gospel. So, a biblical vision of God leads to a gospel purpose of Christ. The biblical vision has three propositions. Not told to, commanded to go do anything. Just soak in these things. The glory of God, the cross of Jesus, life transformation by the Spirit. You do that, it will lead you inevitably to action. Focusing on the gospel like that in, in scripture will not lead you to a static life. A dormant life. You will not hibernate. You will get active. And then you will find actions to do. Gospel actions. Gospel drawing in, gospel building up, gospel sending out. Okay? There you have it. That's a lot. But that's what um, is underneath, that's the foundation of what we stand on at Grace Bible Church. Shepherd your heart there. Shepherd your home here with us. Shepherd your ministry here with us. Um, That's what we need. All right. Any questions, comments, anything you guys want to add? Elders, anybody? Any questions? Ladies, any comments? Is is saving has saved, but what the, what the Spirit does is he takes when he when, when I was the pagan little 19 year old that I was, he takes the the Holy Spirit takes the work of the cross and he applies it to the one that God is saving in that sense at that time. Uh, He continues in sanctification to continue to apply the atoning effects of of Christ. Not for forgiveness, reconciliation, expiation, all those other kinds of fancy words, but for sanctification, the power of the cross. We walk by the Spirit. We put to death the deeds of the body. Um, So, he did it. He applied it. He is applying it. And he will apply it in the future. We have been saved. We are saved. We will be saved. Right? Great question.